before I read, I want you for a moment to imagine with me that you're at a dinner party at someone's home. The host of the party is a well-respected church leader and town councilman who lives in a huge house in a very lucrative neighborhood. The occasion of the party is to welcome and to hear from a visiting speaker. You're glad to have been invited because there has been a lot of talk about this guest. He's been causing quite a stir with his radical views and his compelling teachings, but you have an open mind and you want to hear from him directly before you form your own opinion. You hear the doorbell, but you don't think anything of it until a woman pushes her way into the room. You see the despairing face at once of the host's wife. This new arrival is not quite dressed for the occasion. She's wearing a tight-fitting, low-cut shirt. She's wearing a skirt that is way too short, and she has on extremely high heels. She's wearing too much makeup, and she's very shaky as she walks, like perhaps she's had just a little too much to drink. She looks, at first glance, like the sort of woman who stands on street corners, She goes straight to the visiting speaker, walks right up to him and throws her arms around him, clasping his head to her chest. You hear her mumble, I'll always be yours. She then begins to caress his face. At that moment, you notice that she's crying. Her mascara is running down her cheeks. Everyone in the room freezes. And you feel sorry for the visiting speaker. You start to feel bad for him that he has to endure this embarrassing display. But instead of pushing her away, the speaker reaches up and he puts his arms around her. He tenderly says right back to her, loud enough for everyone to hear, and you will always be mine. But you're confused. Maybe you misunderstood what he said. I mean, surely he didn't say what you think he said. It's obvious, obvious to everyone what kind of woman this is. Surely he recognizes this. So you begin to do what we often do. You begin to judge him. You begin to question his discernment. You even begin to wonder if she might be, or excuse me, if he might be one of her customers. What a bizarre dinner party. That would be when Tim Chester shared that in his book, Meals with Jesus, I thought, wow, what a bizarre dinner party that would be. So join with me as I read from Luke chapter seven, verses 36 through 50, where Luke tells us about a dinner party that's a lot like this. Let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Luke chapter seven, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, 
She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and she anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned five, owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed. We're amazed at this. We shouldn't be, but we are. Jesus, friend of sinners, we call upon you now as we come to the preaching of the word. Help us. May your spirit rule and reign over our hearts. Remind us of the great love you have for us, your people. May we also, in turn, love much. Father, I pray that you would indeed work among your people this morning. Pray that you would help me, your servant, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This dinner that Luke describes for us has all the trademarks of what was known and called the Greco-Roman symposium, a symposium-type dinner. It's a, a meal that's followed by an extended discussion by the guests. The guests would recline around three sides of a central table. They would be on couches, right? They'd, they'd lean with their one arm up on the table, their feet hanging off the edge of the couch. It's a great way to sit, isn't it? You don't eat like that anymore, maybe, unless we're on the couch or something. But while dining, that's how they would do. They would lay, and then large homes during this time would have dining rooms that were in the central part of the home with an open courtyard, right? Uh, and in this open courtyard, people from outside could enter and stand around. They could see what was happening. And in some cases, uh, they would even enter into the discussion, try to uh, insert themselves into the discussion that was taking place. So it was entirely uncommon for folks to come right off the streets, especially the poor, 
who had hopes of getting some leftovers from the meal. And this explains for us why it would have been so easy for this woman to have access to Jesus. She's probably loitering in that public area when she slips in and starts washing and anointing his feet. And even though it was common for people to be present at such an event, everything that this woman does is completely uncommon. Everything that she does is nothing less than shocking. But this account doesn't exist just for its shock value. I believe this account reaches into the very depths of our souls and it teaches us a fundamental truth that all of us need to know. That no matter how sinful we are, no matter how broken we are, there is true forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ. So let's take a closer look at the events of this meal and learn together. We'll list it as three lessons. We'll learn together three lessons related to this true and abundant forgiveness. If you're taking notes, the first lesson I want us to see is that Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus welcomes sinners. Not much is known about this guest, we'll call her an unexpected guest, who crashes this party other than what the text tells us. You can see it there. She's a, quote, woman of the city who was a sinner. In fact, we're told three times in this passage, three times she's described as a sinner. Uh, People, uh, pastors, theologians, writers usually assume that she is some kind of prostitute and they might very well be right. Luke certainly gives the connotation of sexual sin by saying she was a woman of the city. But in a way, does it really matter? Does it really matter? A sinner is a sinner. Whether she was a gossip or a call girl, she was still a sinner. This is why she came to Jesus. Sinful as she was, she knew that Jesus was the friend of sinners. And this sinful woman was looking for free grace. So she runs to him with her, get this, expensive perfume. This would have been an expensive thing. She runs to him and she worships at his feet and she weeps. Given the context, we're led to assume that she's weeping because one, she's in grief over her own sin. And two, She's finding joy. She's finding joy in the faith that she expresses, the faith that Jesus condemns, or excuse me, commends at the end. She's expressing this faith. She's a a mixture of grief and faith. Sound familiar? Look at the text, though. She sheds so many tears that she's even able to clean his feet with her hair. Now, I'm a crier. I don't know that I've ever cried that much. We won't talk about the fact that I don't have enough hair to do that, but think for this for a moment. She's broken. She's weeping. She's able to clean his feet with her hair. Now, this is also really shocking. This is also really shocking, not because of the number of tears, but in these days, it was very shameful for a woman to let her hair down in public. In fact, Jewish law went so far as to say that a man could divorce his wife 
if she ever showed her full hair to another man. But this woman had no regard for man-made laws or thoughts at this time. She was so in love with Jesus that she forgets herself entirely. I mean, purely, and it is pure, purely and with worshipful passion, she lets her hair fall onto his feet. At this point, we have enough detail to understand the weight of the situation, right? By now, this woman has done enough to justify Jesus standing up and rebuking her for her actions. That's what we would expect Jesus to do. It certainly would have been justifiable in everyone's eyes for him to do so. But this kind of behavior is socially unacceptable, especially in the house of a respected religious teacher, a Pharisee like Simon. And this is just not something you do. And you certainly don't do it to an honored guest. But what does Jesus do? He does the exact opposite. He lets her continue in her worship. He lets her worship. Let that sink in for a moment. Put yourself there. That response that would have been in your heart like everyone else is likely. And Jesus lets her worship. He welcomes the sinner. He takes her just as she is. He doesn't cast her away. He doesn't heap more and more shame upon this already shame-filled soul. I can only imagine the magnitude of compassion and love that was filling his eyes for her. And it remains amazing to me, and it should to you as well, how amazing it is that he does nothing. He does nothing. His, his very reputation, earthly speaking, his very reputation is at stake. But Jesus is happy to link his reputation, even to link his own identity to hers at this moment. Just as he's happy to link his identity to us, even in this moment. You see, Jesus welcomes sinners. He takes people just as they are. Many people are hesitant to come to Jesus because they've convinced themselves that they're too broken, that they are unforgivable. You know anyone like that? I do. Have you ever felt that way? I have. You know, even if we're followers of Jesus, it's easy to convince ourselves that there's some dark corner of our past, some sin that we've committed that God will never be able to forgive. So we hide it away. Even worse, as followers of Jesus, we may continue in some sin, some hidden vice that has taken hold of our lives, whether it be lust, lying, addiction, anger, treasure those things and we fail to confess it for fear that God will reject us, that God will not forgive us. Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus still welcomes sinners. I want you to hear me when I say this. There's no sin so great. There's no past so dark. There's no present that is so messed up that Jesus will not welcome you that Jesus will not embrace you and that Jesus will not forgive you. But you must go to Jesus. Hear me, you must go to Jesus. By grace and through faith, you must embrace him. Embrace his compassion 
Embrace this promise to forgive you and restore you. Not only does Jesus welcome you, not only does Jesus welcome sinners, but sinners welcome Jesus. Sinners welcome Jesus. This is the second of our lessons we learn from this account. So if you're taking note, our second lesson is sinners welcome Jesus. I want you to note that the woman's worship doesn't stop with her tears and her foot washing. In a gesture of humility, she gives to Jesus her most expensive possession. Ordinarily, if you had such perfume, you would use it to anoint someone's head, not their feet. You would use it on someone's head. And furthermore, who cared for people's feet in this day? Only servants cared for people's feet. But she was more than willing to take the servant's place and to pour out her most expensive possession. So with reverence and submission, see, she uses that perfume to anoint her master's feet and she gives him the highest honor. As she pours out her perfume, she's pouring out her very heart. It's the fragrance of love. And she kisses Jesus' feet. Luke says she doesn't cease to kiss his feet. That's extravagant love of a forgiven sinner. I want you to contrast this now with the host of the dinner party, Simon the Pharisee. Look at verse 39. It tells us that as he watched this event unfold before him, he scorns Jesus, not out loud, but he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. Notice the contempt in his words, his judgmental attitude that's quick to condemn other people for their sins, but not looking inside at his own heart. This is typical behavior of the Pharisees. We've seen it already from Luke Pharisees, you know, they have their holier-than-thou lifestyles and their indignation towards people who don't live up to their standards. This woman definitely did not live up to the standards of the Pharisees. And he had a similar attitude toward Jesus. Until now, he had wondered whether Jesus might be a prophet. That's probably why he invited him. I want to know for myself. Let's bring him in here and find out who this guy is and what he has to say. Now he was sure that he wasn't a prophet because prophets don't associate with sinners, or at least that was his thinking. Remember, he thinks that God is for good people, not for people whose lives are a mess. If Jesus were a real prophet, he would have known better than to associate with a woman like this. So what Luke is doing here in his account is he's showing us two responses to Jesus, two responses based on two totally different attitudes about sin and grace. Amid all their differences, there's one contrast between Simon and the woman that stands out as fundamental. You know what that is? Of the two of them, only one of them truly believed that God had grace for sinners. Only one of them truly believed that God had abundant grace for sinners. While the woman is quick to welcome Jesus and shower him with her love, Simon is quick to judge, quick to be graceless 
merciless and loveless. As one commentator puts it, and I like how he said it, he has an Arctic heart, a permafrost of the soul. So let me ask you, have you truly welcomed Jesus? Have you truly welcomed Jesus? Even when Jesus messes up your own views of grace and mercy and forgiveness, do you take him at his word and do you believe what he says is true? Even more, do you see the eternal value in not scorning Jesus for his love for sinners? That's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to look at a whole group of people and be like, nah, they're too far gone. Is that true? Can we look at any sinner and say, oh, they're too far gone for Jesus? Well, if that's true for them, it's true for us. No, we need to embrace the love that Jesus has for us. We need to embrace the love that Jesus has for all who need his grace and forgiveness. It'll do us good to remember that we indeed are sinners and that God rescued us from our sin. And we have an ongoing deep need for his forgiveness. I think too often we find ourselves like this woman I wanna tell you about, this wealthy duchess who was invited to hear the great evangelist, George Whitfield. Some of you may have heard of George Whitfield. He was uh, key in the first great awakening as he preached both in Europe and here uh, in the new colonies in the States. Um, he and Wesley, and of course, Edwards, uh, they were known for a particular brand of preaching. We'll call it fire and brimstone, okay? Uh, this proud woman who was invited was offended to receive the invitation because she had heard about Whitfield's theology and his style of always talking about sin. And she didn't want anyone telling her that she needed to repent. So she wrote to the woman who had invited her, and this is what she wrote. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. Thanks for telling me how you feel, right? It is offensive. Guess what? The gospel is offensive. It tells us that we're sinners and we need to repent, that we're in need of grace, ongoing grace. You see, this woman didn't see herself as broken she insisted on promoting her own brand of righteousness. I always contrast her with St. Francis, who was famous for saying, there's nowhere a more wretched and miserable sinner than I. You can't find one as bad as me. Do you know what wretched, miserable sinners do? They welcome Jesus. They welcome Jesus and they celebrate his love and grace, just as we've done already this morning. So now we come to our third and our final lesson from this event. This is our last point this morning. Uh, sorry, it's not as clean as the first two. Love and forgiveness are directly related. Love and forgiveness are directly related. You see, while Simon is wondering to himself if this man Jesus was truly a prophet, Jesus is listening. Jesus hears the thoughts of his heart. So Jesus proves himself. 
to be a prophet, right? He proves it. He heard him thinking, boy, that's a good reminder. It's not just what we do outwardly. God knows our hearts. He hears our thoughts. He knows. So Jesus proves himself and he rebukes him. He rebukes him for being a host that wasn't really a host and praising the true host who wasn't even a guest to begin with. You see the turn there? And he tells Simon a parable, a parable designed to show that what has happened in his presence is more than just understanding a contrast between two people. He tells it so that Simon will understand what really makes the difference between these two. So look there again with me, verse 41 through 43. Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. You can think of these amounts of money as maybe two to three months of wages versus two weeks of wages, right? They're both in debt, right? One is a much greater than the other, Jesus asked. If you give them both, who do you think? And so that's the heart of this parable. And Jesus is doing more than just to give a lecture on economics, right? Uh, Rather, he's talking about debt. He's talking about the great debt of our sin, ultimately, and the grace of God that demands our gratitude. And I love how he applies the parable to Simon. Look in verse 44. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? I always chuckle when I read that, right? I'm like, yes, he sees this woman, everyone in the room and standing outside. How can you not see this woman? They're all looking at her with shock and scorn. But how does Jesus look at her? As a sister, as a daughter, as a worshiper. Simon had done almost nothing for Jesus since he arrived He didn't do all the things that were normal for you to do if you're gonna welcome guests into your home. There was no water for his feet. There's no kiss of greeting. There was no oil put on his head. Simon was barely hospitable. His rude response shows that he had almost as much contempt for Jesus as he had for this sinful woman. So what makes the true difference in how these two love? To Jesus, the answer is obvious. She has been forgiven and forgiven much. Philip Ryken says it this way, and I quote, it is the forgiven who make the best lovers. The more people have been forgiven, the more they love, as even Simon himself would be forced to admit. We're not talking about what kind of sin needs to be forgiven. We're just talking about those who know the deep well and richness of the forgiveness of God. And we understand just how sinful we really are. Those are the ones who will be the best lovers of Jesus. This woman's passion and love for Jesus is a direct reflection of the reality that the the great debt of her sin has been forgiven. Can you imagine at the end of this when Jesus tells her your sins are forgiven? Can you imagine? We're not told what happens, except everyone's like, just like they were in chapter five. How can he forgive sins? Imagine what that meant to her. Hopefully it's exactly how you feel when you're reminded that your sins are forgiven in Christ. 
Forgiveness and love are directly related to the degree that we have been forgiven. So we will love Jesus. And I argue that we'll love others as well. I wanna share with you a wonderful story of love and forgiveness from several years ago. It was an early morning in Georgia and there was a man named Matt Swatzel. He was driving home from a 24-hour shift as a firefighter and he had only 30 minutes of sleep in that whole shift. He was less than four miles from his home when he suddenly heard what he later called the most god-awful sound he had ever heard. Matt, he was then 20, he realized after the sound that he heard that he had fallen asleep at the wheel and that he had crashed. When he got out of his car, he saw the car of 30-year-old June Fitzgerald. She was pregnant and she was also traveling with her then 19-month-old daughter. And the daughter's name was Faith. Only Faith survived. June and the baby she was carrying both died in the crash. June's husband, name is Eric Fitzgerald. He was a local pastor. He was understandably devastated. One evening while he was meeting with some people from the church, a, a young girl, out of the mouth of babes, right? A young girl mentioned that she couldn't help but think of how horrible the driver of the car must have felt. Realizing she was right, Eric and the congregation began praying for Matt. It was Eric's opportunity to practice the forgiveness that he had preached time and time again. You forgive as you've been forgiven, he said. In an interview later, he said it wasn't an option. If you've been forgiven, then you need to extend that forgiveness to others. So Eric went so far as to speak on Matt's behalf on the trial, excuse me, at the trial, and he was key in helping secure a lesser sentence. Once court proceedings were over, Eric and Matt struck up a friendship, and then several years later, they have continued to meet for breakfast and Bible study. Even several years after that, Matt found forgiveness himself from the Lord, and now they not only share the effects of that tragic accident, that young man, Matt, gave his life to Jesus, and now he and Eric celebrate together as brothers in the Lord. We love stories like that, don't we? You might wonder, how could he possibly forgive this young man? How? Because he had been forgiven much. And so he can love much as well. No one will argue that of all the characteristics of the Christian that's mentioned in scriptures, that love reigns supreme. And no one will argue that the love we have for one another and for the world serve to validate the truth that we are indeed Christians. Jesus himself said, they will know you are Christians by your love. So I wanna ask you this morning, do you, like Simon the Pharisee, do you have a love problem? Do you have a love problem? Do you struggle with loving others? Do you struggle with loving God? Well, maybe, just maybe, you've forgotten just how forgiven you are. He who is forgiven little loves little, Jesus said. He who is forgiven much loves much.
Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, as I already have, because you have been forgiven much, I encourage you to love all the more. Love God, love others, pour out your extravagant love for Jesus and your worship and in your service for him to others. And when you do that, you will indeed welcome him just as he has welcomed you. Amen and amen. Would you?